0: I had to invest in the idea, I had to invest in the product, and I had to invest in myself. And I remember once I did that, I went to meet investors and said, look, look at what I've done by myself. And I remember this guy telling me, and he's like, no one wants to hear about Africa through the lens of an African person. And that just did not sit well with me. And I said to him, I will prove you wrong.
1: Welcome to Depth and Candor, the podcast that explores how changemakers of color define and live out their purpose through their careers, side hustles, and entrepreneurial contributions. I'm your host, Hiwate Tegetana, and I am thrilled to take you with me as I talk to incredible innovators about what it really takes to do impactful work and live a life you love. Welcome back to the show. This week has, this past week has just been insane. It's my third week at the new job and I love, love, love my new job, but I am so saddened by the state of the world. And watching Dr. Ford testify about Brett Kavanaugh was really just such a downer. And it made me realize how not realize but remember how wild white privilege is and how wild white male privilege is and it's insane to me because there are many moments where I've talked about this before where I have feelings of self-doubt or uh, wondering about my worth and my capacity and I think that understanding that we live in a society where a black woman is not valued but black women continue to rise and continue to do wonderful and incredible work in the world really that 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 concept fueled me because watching brett kavanaugh speak was just disgusting um And it reminded me that I can do only what I can do and I'm responsible for myself and the work that I put out into the world. And so I say that to say like it was just very hard for me to like wake up in the morning and like get to editing a podcast episode, but This morning I woke up and I was like, you know what, I created Depth and Candor to highlight inspiring stories of people of color who are doing things that are epic in the world and that will inspire the rest of us to do amazing things. Things. So that's why we're here. And today's episode is brought to you by Skillshare, which is a monthly membership site where you can take thousands of classes taught by experts all over the world. And I am so happy to tell you that Skillshare currently has a masterclass taught by the incomparable. Roxane Gay, who is the epitome of a woman of color whose work improves the state of the world. If you know Roxane Gay's writing, you already know what's up. You don't need me to tell you to head over to Skillshare and take her class ASAP because we all need to be able to tell our stories in real and authentic ways. And her class is, it's a masterclass on how to tell your story. And if you don't know Roxane Gay, I'm happy to be the one to introduce her to you. She is an incredible writer whose work shows up in the New York Times and The Guardian pretty often. She's the author of books like A.T., An Untamed State, Bad Feminist, Hunger, and Difficult Women. She's also the author of World of Wakanda for Marvel, which I had no idea about. Basically, if you were ever to look for an image of a badass whose writing will leave you feeling smarter, more honest, and more op- more open, Roxanne Gay is it. And the fact that she's teaching a master class on writing about your story on an affordable platform like Skillshare is no joke. So to take the class... In order to accurately tell your story in a personal statement or a cover letter or a blog or an about page or whatever else, head over to Skillshare to try it for free for two months by using the promo code depth and candor free. That's one word. Depth and candor free. Today's spotlight, uh, I'm so excited about this. Today's spotlight is on Aina Fadina. She is the creator, executive producer, and host of Eye of Africa, an original multimedia series that explores and celebrates the stories of Africans all over the world who are innovating across various industries from fashion and art to music and film to entrepreneurship and innovation, providing an exclusive insight into what it means to be inspired by Africa. Eye of Africa was launched to change the narrative of the continent globally. And a famous interviewee of hers that you might know is Jadena. You know, the dude that sings, I'm a classic, man. Did, 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 did. Yeah, that guy. So Aina and I met through a mutual friend when we were all just drinking coffee and hanging out in Harlem this past summer. And at that point, I learned that Aina was currently in an executive MBA program at Kellogg School of Management. But I had no idea that she was the creator of Eye of Africa or that she had a really impressive career as a fashion model and creative entrepreneur. She has had over a decade of experience in the international fashion industry. And how cool is this? She's worked as an in-house muse. Can you imagine a muse with American and European designers and luxury retailers like Oscar de la Renta, Alexandra McQueen, Fendi, Armani, Jay Mandel... Carolina Herrera, Versace, Bergdorf Goodman, Neiman Marcus, Barney's, Harper's, Harper's Bazaar, and Vogue. And I am so proud to call Aina a fellow African creative. She is smart. She is inspired. And as you'll hear from this interview, we have an oddly similar path towards our creative endeavors. And Aina is driven in a way that doesn't feel obnoxious or self-serving. She's focused on her future, but it's very, very clear that she's fueled by her past and by by her story. So without further ado, Aina
0: Fadina. So the right way, the Yoruba way is Aina Fadina. Okay. But given the context of like, you know, there are three vowels in my first name and the only four letters in there and they're mm-hmm. American way. So it's like know Fadina. So if mm-hmm. you call me either, I'm totally cool with that. OK, so um, I was born and raised in Lagos, Nigeria, uh, moved to the States when I was 13 years old and initially we moved to New York with my family and eventually uh, settled in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and uh, graduated from Temple University, TU, uh, was a pre-med major in undergrad. And um, yeah, it was a great journey because initially I was a computer science major and after taking like three programming classes, I realized that that world was not for me. Mm -hmm. And, it was also because um, I felt that there was a lack of representation in the in you know in the classes. I was the only black woman, and when I had issues uh, with programming, I had no one to turn to, and I realized that I didn't have the support system I needed to be a computer science programmer. And I kind of went back to like, okay, what do you want to do? And I always wanted to help people. And as an immigrant, we really know that they are like four careers for us to have. I figured I'd go to medical school. So yeah. after Temple, I worked for a biotech company called Cardionet. And what they did was it was a hard EKG system that monitored your heart 24 hours, seven days a week. And I was selling heart devices to doctors. At that point, this was about 2005, I realized that the healthcare industry and the medical industry was no longer what it was going to be due to this, you know, me working for this biotech company and having access to innovation and the intersection of innovation and healthcare. And I thought to myself, go back and get an MBA. Uh, I was only two years out of undergrad at that point, and I graduated college quite early, mm-hmm. so I figured, you know, get more work experience before going back to uh, before going back to business school to kind of learn the business side of the healthcare industry. I was lucky enough to get scouted at a club in Philadelphia during this time. I was, you know, it was my sister's 21st birthday and this designer walked up to me and he was like, hey, do you model? And I looked at him like he was completely insane. And I was like, <laughs> kind of like, no, because in my head I was thinking I'm actually smart. How do you think that I'm a model based on who I looked?" You know, all these crazy narratives we kind of tell ourselves about who we are. And his girlfriend walked over, so I knew, okay, he's not that much of a, you know, Freak, creep, creep, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, I ended up doing a show for him at the Philadelphia Art Institute, and it was fantastic. It was the first time that I wore my hair naturally. At that point, I was natural since 1999, but I always wore braids. I wore my hair naturally, first time getting like the full face of makeup done and actually like walking on the runway, and I had a phenomenal time. Shortly after that, I went to an agency in Philadelphia, got signed. It's called Reinhardt Agency. And shortly after that, I moved to New York to model full time. However, I moved to New York because CardioNet uh, was downsizing, and I think they were, they were getting acquired by a bigger company, and I got laid off. And I remember driving home. It was April 2006. At that point, I was already modeling um, in the Philadelphia area, and then also I would come to New York on the weekends to model as well, too. And I remember driving, I was just in tears because I thought I was 23 years old. I had just invested in real estate property and I was a landlord, in quotations. And I got laid off my job and I thought to myself, my life is over. Got home and I told my dad and my dad was me like, "Okay, what are you crying for? And I'm like, you know, I got laid off and he was like, this is a chance for you to do what you want to do in life. What is it that you want to do? And I said to myself, I don't know. He's like this muddling thing you're doing why don't you explore it more? I'm like, okay. And packed my bags and moved to New York in 2006 uh, to model Mm full-time. And um, I call myself, I call my life a life of opportunities of being able to see an opportunity or being given an opportunity to do something and making the decision to go along with it. Uh, Mm -hmm. But thanks to my, yeah, thanks to my parents. You know, my parents always encouraged us to do what we wanted to do. Uh, it wasn't their ambition for me to be a doctor. I wanted to fulfill their ambition. But at the mm-hmm. same time, my parents always encouraged do what you love, do what you want to do. The only thing that you have to do to make us happy is do it to the best of your ability, regardless of whatever it is. And mm-hmm. um, I think that kind of gave my siblings, uh, all of us, sort of the insights to really ask ourselves what is our mission in life, what is our purpose, and what do we intend to do? Mm-hmm. So yeah, moved to New York, um, couch surfed at my sister's place initially, and eventually got my own apartment. We all know the New York hustle. I started <laughs> modeling as uh, I was doing the fashion shows initially, and I remember going to castings in the winter, in the cold. We go to about sixty castings in one day. This was during Fashion Week, and you possibly move, maybe book two jobs, not even the entire season. And I realized that, okay, uh, I was too old psychologically, to some degree to sort of like deal with you know walking around in heels and there's snow on the ground, and it's a hustle. And I yeah. commend you know young women and guys who are out here you when know, their fashion weeks about to start, who are literally going to castings and not sure what the outcome is going to be. Yeah. I was lucky to work in-house as a model. So I did a couple of trunk shows at Bergdorf Goodman and Neiman Marcus for a number of luxury brands. And um, the CEOs of these luxury brands were like, you look great in our clothes. Why don't you come into our, into our atelier to become our showroom fit model? And mm-hmm. that experience gave me the insights to understand not just sort of fashion as an art, but fashion as a, as a business I gain insights to seeing things from like having a designer, having this idea about X, Y, and Z, having the mood board put together, the fabrics getting picked. The the and the samples being made, and those samples were fit onto my body, and then we would you know I would wear the clothes that would be shown during Fashion Week during the fit appointments, and a winter would come in, and Tyler would come in to view the collection before the collection goes into the runway, and then when we sold to buyers of like Neiman's, Bergdorf, um, Harrods, you know international stores in the Middle East, in Japan, and Tokyo. I was an in-house model. So I was also able to see the operations, the business, the supply chain of the fashion industry. And then after that, I would then do the trunk shows at all these stores. So I mm-hmm. followed the, I followed from, I call it idea to ideation, to when the item got into the hands of the consumer. In addition to that, I also get insights where a lot of these brands are young emergent brands. They needed to raise capital for their venture. And I would be in meetings with investors the CEO and the designer. So just imagine being a fly on that wall where mm. the CEO, his whole goal is how can we maximize profit for our investors? How do we maximize profit for our business? The designer on the other hand, his whole thing is just about I want to make beautiful clothes. Yes. And then you have the investor that's like, I'm going to invest in you because I believe in you. But at the same time, how can I get X amount of percentage of um what you call it? Like uh, basically, what is a market risk if I invest in you? Because this is a whole new industry to some capacity that does not have the formalized way of like investments, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. you're basically on a fly on the wall, listening to these conversations. And I say that a lot of girls, you know, showroom is extremely tough. It's challenging. Obviously, there are a lot more jobs. So they're a lot harder. Um, people think it's like, oh, you're a model, you're taking pretty pictures. I'm like, no, I was basically. the grind of the fashion business however I got a lot of insights about like I said before what is the business of fashion how do you create a business based off something that you love doing and how do you build and align strategic partnerships ultimately that would drive revenue for your business and then also how do you assess your competitors And how do you leverage the past to the future? Because I always say in fashion, nothing is ever new in fashion. Everything that you've seen, it's been done before. But who's reinventing the new thing? Who's innovative about, you know, how they're taking old ideas and turning it into new things? And um, yeah, so that's sort of like my pathway of into the entrepreneurship world. So if people ask me, what are you? I call myself, I am a creative entrepreneur I am a model, I am a facilitator, I am a connector, I am a cultural anatomist, and also I'm a visual storyteller.
1: That's amazing. <laughs> That's exactly all of the words that I would use to describe you as well from everything I've seen, e- including your work at with Eye of Africa. Yes. Why don't you tell us about that?
0: So Eye of Africa is, I call it my baby, but at the same time, the reason why I created Eye of Africa was because I was living in New York at, you know, this was about 2011, 2012. Uh, there were all these interesting things happening from a, from an African perspective in the diaspora as well, too. You know, I was, I was intertwined with creatives, entrepreneurs doing interesting things. And I said to myself, wait... Why are we why aren't our conversations being televised? Why aren't our narratives being told? Why are African stories and you know to some and, and to some degree black stories being told by people who do not look like us? I had I was one degree of separation to some, you know, from entrepreneurs, from investors who were invested into Africa. And at the time I thought that people in Africa cared about what we were doing in the West. Uh, I was a little bit wrong about my hypothesis to some degree because people in Africa, there's so much happening that their their world is it's it's blossoming, it's so beautiful that there's so much happening that there's not that con con they're not that interested in what's happening in America, what's happening in London, if that makes sense. They are to some degree, but they aren't because there's so much beauty and there are so many things happening on the continent. So I said to myself, okay, how can you highlight these narratives? And what Eye of Africa is, it's a series that celebrates innovative thinkers and individuals who are inspired by Africa through a global lens. I felt that it was important to celebrate the past, uh, celebrate the present, and think about what is the future of Africa, and how do we we celebrate the greatest resource that Africa has? It's its human capital. It's the people. And I wanted to highlight these stories. And I felt that it was important for these stories to be told by me as an African woman, with global yeah. sensibilities, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, and it's been an amazing so, experience. Like I've, it's just, it's just been so powerful, so empowering, challenging. But I always stay focused on the mission, if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely, but you know, so you're also in grad school right now. You're in business school right now. So how in the world do you do it? How do you balance running your own creative production and going to school?
0: Honestly speaking, it hasn't been easy. It's been extremely challenging. Uh, I've found balance. Understanding, once again, I go back to my why. I remember listening to Rich Dennis of uh, Sundial, the founder of Shea Moisture, and he always said, remember your North, your North Star. Mm-hmm. And that continues to inspire me to continue. I have an amazing family who have been tremendously supportive And I would not be able to do what I'm doing without them. I have amazing friends who are invested in me. I have mentors, one of them, which you know, Stacey Henderson, who has just, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of so many people. And that's how I'm able to continue. At the same time, I go back to my North Star. Um, and it's been challenging. Like there are times when I don't take care of Ina anymore. And what does take care of Ina mean? I love going on walks. I could go on, I could go on three, on three um, I'm sorry, I could walk for three hours just like leisurely. Now I don't have the time or the capacity to do that. I love to cook. I don't have the capacity to da- to do that. I'm literally between Philadelphia, New York, Miami, and Evanston at the moment. But I always go back to why am I doing what my, what I'm doing And the reason why I went back to grad school was because, as a creative entrepreneur, people are people want to put you in boxes. They want to say, "Oh, but you're a model, but you're on TV, you know, you're this, you're interesting, you're cool, you're doing interesting things." But I realized that in order for me to change the way business is conducted in the creative space, in order for me to, to some capacity, validate my existence as an entrepreneur, as a businesswoman. I needed to make decisions based off not just like my creative gut, because that always drives me, but at the same time, how do I take quantitative and qualitative analysis to make informed decisions? How do I think about, you know, how do you how do you think about growing an idea and also growing the business behind the idea? How do you get others to really think about this is a great idea? Why should we invest in this person, if that makes sense? And I felt that in order to make change and also give other people that looked like me access to capital, other people that look who look like me access to continue to follow their passion, and their dreams, I wanted to have this fundamental education to be the agent of change in the business side of things. Yeah, and yeah, yeah so it's it, it's been challenging. But honestly speaking, I said model is the best thing that happened to me and uh, going to business school is 1.25. It's a very, very close, not even second, not even 1.5, but 1.25. It's been phenomenal. Wow. Yeah.
1: Okay. So we're going to talk about funding and venture capitalists in a second, but you mentioned your North star. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit more about that. Like what, what do you define as your purpose or what's the motive that drives you to do all of the things that you do?
0: So I will give, like I said, I'm going to give full disclosure and ownership of that North star to Rich Dennis. Uh, yeah. cause I, I remember hearing him speak at, a, um, at a conference And when I think about my vision, when I think about sort of what drives me, what motivates me, I always go back to the ones that came before me, and I always go back to my nieces, my nephew. If I do have kids eventually, how am I able to take the history of we are as people, culturally, Um, African history and African culture is so dynamic. It's so interesting. It's so different. But at the same time, the fundamental essence of who we are is truly the same. How do we celebrate those things and how do we learn from our past to inspire the future and the legacy that we intend to leave? I always say, what is what is the footprint that we want to leave the world? And that's what motivates me. That's what drives me. That's what inspires me. I want other people who are going through the journey to have an easier journey in life than I've had by the steps that mm-hmm. I've taken. Once again, the reason why I am able to do the things that I've done is because of the sacrifices that my parents made and my ancestors made. And as an African woman, as a Nigerian woman, as an immigrant, as I started Eye of Africa, kind of looking at sort of like the why is it in the past, the future, the present... I always say, how are we connecting the dots between Africa, African-Americans, and also ports where Black people have landed globally? My Mm -hmm. experience has been easier to some capacity as a woman, first and foremost, as a Black person, through the struggles and the sacrifices that African-Americans have made in America for other people, you know? Mm -hmm. So a part of me is always inspired by that because i know that i would not miss this level of success or neither would have my parents without the sacrifices made by enslaved africans who came here um through through slavery so that's yeah. another reason that inspires me because i truly believe that when we think about the struggles of black people globally i it's been it's been so hard but this narratives yeah. are so fragmented because the other thing is as africans as Black people, we tell our history through, our, through 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 oration. We don't necessarily document things through writing as how other people do culturally. Mm-hmm. So part mm-hmm. of it's like, how do we create this thing that other people like, you know, the, 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 the kids of the future can see and they can see themselves in the past. They can see themselves in the future. They can see themselves through other lenses that they're not used to seeing. It. So... That's what really drives me and that's what motivates me. Because our history is so long, as Nigerians would say, we have such a long history, but it's so fragmented, it's so broken, it's being told through different lenses to fulfill different visions of other people. And I think we have the resources now, it may not be a lot, but we have the resources to narrate and shape our own stories. And um, you know, that truly is my North Star. And I always say, if I can make the journey easier for other people, then my mission is sort of done. And I, I, it's about paying homage to those that came before me, because I think that's what Africans truly are. You know, we pay homage to the past and other for us to continue to grow, um, you know, we to, to continue to grow and foster the future.
1: Yeah, you know, Ina, it's crazy because we haven't actually talked about this, but our paths have actually been like eerily similar. Mm -hmm. Um, So I came from Ethiopia to the U.S. when I was 15. I came to Kidron, Ohio, which is like an Amish town in Ohio. And (laughs) I was a foreign exchange student. I lived there for a few years, lived with my host family in Ohio. And then when they moved to Virginia, I moved with Mm -hmm. them ended up going to school there. I was pre-med because I expected that that's what my parents wanted for me. I just assumed right. that. I think there was also, you know, just if your parents see that you're good at science, they're going to be like this kid's going to be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so, I took that on and I internalized yeah. that and I I pushed myself to go to to be a med student, but I knew I wasn't interested yeah. in that. And I would take these like Writing classes or international studies classes, and I would thrive in all of those classes. And I'd go to biochem, and I I was a biochem major. And I remember being like, "This is so lame. (laughs) Like, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I feel I have to." So, and it's interesting because my family said the exact same thing your family did. My mom would always tell me, "She's like," and my dad, they'd both Mm -hmm. say, "We don't care what you do; just do your absolute best. That's all we ask." Absolutely. And so I was terrified to tell my mom, I didn't want to go to med school. And I told her and she was like, that's fine. I want you to do what you want to do. And I think part of what's really scary about that is that you have to figure out what you want to do. So I graduated, moved to New York and was trying to figure it out. I worked at a nonprofit for a few months. And then I was like, you know, I know healthcare. I know I'm interested in healthcare, so I'm interested to learn the business of healthcare. And I went and uh, I was a pharmaceutical sales rep with Eli. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And um, I you know, they have these like two year terms when you sign mm-hmm. on. So I signed on for two years and I knew that at the end of the two years, I would need to make a move. Um, even if they were to offer me something, I knew that that wasn't really what I wanted to mm-hmm. do. So I ended up going to grad school. I thought, okay, you know, I'm down this health path. That's where I'm starting to build my career. So I might as well just add to this. And I thought I'm interested in how to get access to medicine, how to get poor populations in countries like Ethiopia, access to medicines um, and how to figure out what's going on with patents and how they work and how to get around mm-hmm. them, etc. So I went and studied public policy at Johns Hopkins and I studied a concentration of health finance. And I remember being like, I'm not actually that interested in this, but I feel like I've already carved a path for myself mm. in this direction, and I'm not hmm. sure how to get out. But it was in in during my time at grad school where I just had to have some sort of creative outlet. And it was actually really kind of painful and difficult because it's like, you know, you think you're supposed to go down mm. this one path, but y- there's also a part of you that's like trying to right. burst out, right? So Um, I started a blog and I would blog every few days, but I was also terrified of what people would think about the stuff I was publishing. And eventually that led us to this. It went from a blog to a video series to a podcast, which is what I feel like is most sustainable and, um, something that I can actually like stick to Mm. for the long run. Mm. And it's amazing to me to hear your story because when I asked you what your driving force is or your North Star, I was also thinking to myself, how would I answer this question? And I think for my for me, I usually say that I help people tell their own powerful stories. So I like I want to create a platform where I can have conversations with people where they highlight their right. own stories. And I think though that I don't acknowledge a huge part of what drives me on a day-to-day basis is really what you mentioned. It's that understanding that I come from a lineage of people with such powerful, powerful Mm -hmm. history. Mm -hmm. And in the moments of like self-doubt and like times where I'm like, I just, I don't know what I'm doing and I want to give up. It's knowing that like, yo, my dad didn't have shoes for the majority right. of his life. Like right. I can, I can figure this out. This is not that serious. Um, so I, I love that you pointed that out because it makes me realize that's actually a big driver in my own life.
0: And I think as when I think about the moments of managing self doubt, I it's weird because everyone's like, "Oh my god, your family! You're so obsessed with your family." I am obsessed with my family because in the moments of self doubt, I always go back to my parents' experiences. And when I think about how many transitions that my parents have had to make from a career perspective for their children, so every mm-hmm. time I doubt myself, my father, you know, PhD, did you know, was successful, still successful. He's retired now. You know, when we moved here, I think about the choices that he had to make to put food on his table, even though he was 54 years old. My mother was 45 years old. They had six kids. There were three kids already in college. I was going to 10th grade. And, you know, I think about what they had to do to put food on the table, so in moments of self-doubt, I go back to their experience. I go back to my grandmother who's 89 and she's still running her little business, selling biscuits and Coca-Cola and a little neighborhood kiosk because she needed something to do. And I always say that the day you were born, you were perfect. In the eyes of your parents and in, in the eyes of your family and before you got your own experiences into like your adult life. You were perfect and you were the full potential of who you're, you were destined to be great. So I always go back to that. The day, I, It's one of those things where it's like, you know, I went to this, um, you know, I'm a firm believer in therapy. I'm a firm believer in seeing life coaches. And I went to see this coach and she made me walk halfway. She's like, where do you think you are at this point in your life? And I was about three quarters in the, you know, if you think about the room in a di- diagonal space and I was about a quarter of the way, I'm sorry. And she was like, look back. When you look back at you as a baby, what do you think your parents felt when you were born? I was like, oh, I was great. I was perfect. I was this beautiful child. And my parents lost a child before me. And, you know, for me, I was like, they were happy to be able to have another child in this world. And she said, anytime you are in a place of doubt, go back to that, And do not allow experiences or things that you've done to define who you are. So, If you've done something that hasn't been successful, never say I am a failure. I always say I tried X, Y, and Z, and these are the lessons that I learned from this opportunity that came from this past experience, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And there are days where I do wallow in my sorrow. There are days when I just put on my sunglasses, I go on my walk, listen to my music, and I listen to certain songs, and I know, okay, I want to cry, and I'll listen to this song, because I know that I'm going to cry, and then, you know, the moment has passed, and you just get on with it, because I think about, okay, I just had to experience, you have to detox this emotional state of existence, because I think a lot of times, we do not allow ourselves to heal emotionally, you know, it's like we put patches to kind of not treat the core of why we're experiencing something because we're not trained to what's what I'm looking for to treat emotional health. Yeah. And you have to give your space. You have to give yourself time. Physical health is just as important as emotional health. We tend to want to dissect the two, but they have to coexist. Your soul, your mind, your body is it's in this it's all in this unit of your physical self so how can you neglect your emotional state of existence
1: yeah i love that you're saying this because i think there's a an incorrect perception that someone who is quote unquote living the life right traveling modeling you're an entrepreneur that you I know people understand that, you know, everybody has problems, but I don't think anyone expects to hear you say, some days I just put my glasses on and listen to the (laughs) song that's going to make me cry. You know, I appreciate that because that's so real. Some days I just want to curl up in my bed and watch whatever series I want to binge watch for the day because I can't handle the day. I can't handle whatever it is. And that's okay. Um, And I don't think even I understood that for a long time. Like I would always encourage people to like really tell the highs and the lows of their experiences, but I don't think I was okay with the fact that some
0: days I'm just not going to do great. And it's like, we're trained to always be a hundred percent and you should be a hundred percent. But in those moments that you do not feel a hundred percent, how do you go back into yourself, into the, into the essence of who you truly are? To rejuvenate, to and you know, I remember it was Fourth of July weekend. My sister was having a barbecue at her friend's house. It was, and I was like, I'm not going. I was like, I'm tired. I am exhausted. I had just finished my first year of business school, and I was in Israel for you know, I was in Israel for this phenomenal trip with fifty storytellers. That was such a powerful trip. And then I came back and I was like, I have to go right back into it again. And I was like, I need to take time out for myself. And I literally, I shut the lights off and turned my computer off, disconnected from the world and just sat there. And sometimes I just sit there in darkness because <laughs> you have to. I, I love yeah. that. So yeah. anyway, yeah. So that's, you know, you have to, we we, we we cannot always be 100%. And I think we put too much pressure on ourselves because we're so intertwined. We look at social media and we think, oh, this person is doing X, Y, and Z. And yeah, that might be happening, but don't forget that social media is a way for you to narrate the stories that you want to tell the world. And you have control of that.
1: I always think of social media as Absolutely. a marketing tool and nothing, nothing else. Like, yeah, it helps you connect with people, etc. Yes. But also if I'm really, really going to connect with you, we probably have exactly. each other's phone numbers. The reality <laughs> is that I'm, I can put together a story of what I want people to see of my life. And it's not necessarily like I'm only going to put up highlight reels, but if my, if my Instagram is about my podcast, I probably am not going to be telling you about my relationships and that's okay. You know, like it's not gonna, you're not gonna know everything about a person through their social media. And I think that's often lost in translation. Um, So tell us about your experience with fundraising. You know, we hear often that a lot of Black women are notoriously Mm -hmm. underfunded. Um, So I'm curious to know how you went about raising money.
0: So it was not easy. I will always go back to, I think there are certain elements of, there are things I did not do. I, I Once I did them incorrectly, they were the wrong way of, you know, when I started Eye of Africa, I did not think about it as a business. It was a passion that became a business. And I think I could have made better strategic decisions from the beginning about how I started. Uh, But I remember when I started, I went to talk to people about, oh, you should invest in this idea, you should invest in this business, but I had no proof of concept, if that makes sense. So I took a step back and I said, why should anyone invest in you and why should anyone invest in your idea when you have not even invested in the idea yourself? You just have the thought. So I took my, you know, I was modeling at the time and I still modeling occasionally now, but at the time I was a full-time model and, you know, as a model, you get your paycheck. You don't get pay- paychecks every two weeks. You get it quarterly. You get it whenever the client decides to pay you. So anytime I would get it, I would get money. I took, I took classes in, um, what do you call it? Commercial, commercial acting. Cause I'm like, how do I look in front of the camera? How do I create this TV show? So I invested in myself and then invested in Eye of Africa. So the first two seasons, I filmed in six different cities. They were all completely self-funded. I stayed, when I was in London, uh, in Europe, I was between London, Paris, and Brussels. I stayed on my sister's apartments and my friend's apartments. For me, they invested, that was investment. So the one thing I will say is, let's when we think about investment, let's take away financial investment first. And then let's take investment that others make, whether it's time, whether it's, you know, they're going to take you out for lunch because they know that you're a struggling entrepreneur or you're a student or whatever it may be, but we'll take it back to how I raised money. I had to invest in the idea. I had to invest in the product and I had to invest in myself. And I remember once I did that, I went to meet investors and said, look, look at what I've done by myself. And I remember this guy telling me, and he's like, no one wants to hear about Africa through the lens of an African person. And that just did not sit well with me. And I said to him, I will prove you wrong. And I continued to hustle. I got so many rejections from investors. like, And I, I always said modeling prepared me f- to be an entrepreneur because as a model, the name of the game was rejection. And it's about how do you pick up again and wear those heels and put your face on and keep going to the next casting. So that really prepared me to really think about what is the business and why should anyone invest in you? And, you know, I'm part of this Black women's tech organization in New York, and these women are bright. They're brilliant. They went to the top, you know, top schools. And not everyone went to the top schools. I don't think to get investment, you have to go to a top X, Y, and Z school. But just to kind of show you the caliber of who these women are and like just what they've been through And these are women who had brilliant ideas, but just had problems raising capital because a lot of times investors do not understand you. And we take these things personally, but we have to understand why do people invest in people that they know, people that look like them, people that have the same experiences that they have? Why would a white man want to invest in a black woman's hair care business? We understand the industry. We understand how much we spend on, on our hair and products, on salons and all those things. But he doesn't even understand that world. Even his children, his daughters don't even understand that world. So to them, it's a foreign idea. So I think a lot of times we think about, oh, we don't have investments. And those things are absolutely valid. But we have to understand that white people invest in white people because they understand white people. And they understand white businesses. If that makes sense. So yeah. we have hurdles to cross, and we also have to encourage ourselves as people of color to think about investing into ourselves, into our communities. Um, and I always say, like, you know, I was lucky enough to have an angel investor, but I had to prove to this person that I had done the work. And it took me, I started I of Africa in 2012. I did not raise my capital to twi- late 2016. So that was four years of just like hustling, of pitching, of pitching to um, distribute to online distributor content producers, to pitch into networks, to pitch into investors for money, to pitch into even filmmakers that wanted to film for me, to pitch into editors. So there were so many facets to me pitching that it was exhausting. But this person, I think they believe in I of Africa, but they believe in me. If that makes sense. Yeah. And can you define what an angel investor is? So angel investor is, I call it, it's not a formalized, you know, you haven't gone through the series A or sort of like the, you know, VC route yet. It's just someone that sees you that believes in you that will ask certain specific questions about what is your business? What is your idea? What is your revenue structure? How do you hope to pay me back? Um, and a lot of angel investors, they say, they know they will not get their return back, but they're like, you know what? We, we, we have a smart amount of capital that you need and we will give you the money to sort of like, you know, invest in what you're trying to do. And that's what an angel investor is. And I always say to people, you know, people think about, oh, I want investors, 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 ask yourself, who am I getting money from? And why should they invest in me? Um so it's more of a, it's it's more of an informal way of it's a it's more of an informal structure of of investors before you kind of go the VC route if that makes sense. Yeah. Um yeah. and they're just people who are willing to take the risk for uh, you know a small ownership or equity in what you're doing in the business that you're doing.
1: Yeah, that makes total sense. So when you think about your career in five years um, and maybe actually your life in five years, what does that look like?
0: Oh, that's a hard question to answer because I I always, I think before I had a clear path about what I wanted to do it, who I wanted to be. however, business school is being the most distru- disruptive, system to my thinking, if that makes sense. Yeah. So business school has allowed me to be open to opportunities that I just could not have imagined. The last year, I thought this is who I am. This is what I want to be. But business school has taught me to see, oh, look, there's something else somewhere else. And how do I have, how do I make informed decisions on how to sort of like chase this new opportunity, if that makes sense. So if I think about my life five years from now, I always go back to what is the impact on the legacy that I intend to leave. And I want to be an, an angel investor for other entrepreneurs, for other creatives, and not just give them financial resources, but really give them the education, uh, the skills that I've learned as an entrepreneur and invest in them that way. So not just give them the financial resources. I think that's great, but how can I give them the knowledge that I've gained over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years my, of my career, But at the same time, I always think about what do I want to envision for my life personally and professionally? Because for me, those two worlds are intersected. I don't see one and they're not mutually exclusive. So I always say I want to be in a state of content, a state of happiness, good health, joy. I want to continue to love what I'm doing. I want to continue to think about my nieces and my nephew and how am I making the world a better place for them? How am I giving them the skill sets of confidence to navigate spaces that I had sort of like learned to navigate? And how am I giving them sort of like emotional intelligence and giving them sort of intellectual curiosity to see the world beyond their world? And that's what I envision for my future. Um, At the same time, it would be nice to have my own family. You know, it would be nice to be married to a loving husband that's supportive, that's nurturing. And that's also an amazing father as well too. So I always try to think about my life to all facets and think about what truly makes me happy. And it's just it's 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 the intersection of fulfillment in my personal, my professional life. I think it's important to see your life is like one unit. Some um, people who need to sort of think of your life separately. But for me, I think my values, my mission, my needs are they're the same, the the same in those two worlds. So yeah, it's to continue to do the work um, in a space that intersects technology, storytelling, creativity, entrepreneurship. And how do we look at the right data to make informed decisions about change, about innovation? About disruption and really making the world a better place, and you know, I took a leadership class, and I remember it was kind of cheesy and corny. But I said to myself that I'm gonna be on the cover of Vogue magazine or fashion magazine and Forbes, as you know, this can I can I curse or no? Yeah, you know how yeah. how can I think about you know my world is like this badass model that's now like this global entrepreneur disrupting the equation and the status quo and really put in Africa and black people and people of marginalized communities um, in the forefront of life. Um, you know, we will know, you know, yeah, we are a subset of an entire group of people, but you will not negate the greatness of who we are and the impact that we have made in this world. And I want to be continue to be a facilitator of that to make those things happen.
1: I love that. I love that so much. So where can people find you and your work with Eye of Africa?
0: So you can find me on so different platforms. Uh, I will spell out my website. It is a fad and company. That's a F is in Freddie, a D and co.com. So a you can find me on Instagram at Ina Fadina or at Eye of Africa. You can find me on Twitter. I need to be a little bit more active on Twitter, but Ina underscore Fadina. And I'm on LinkedIn. Um, Ina at com. And if I don't get back to you, I will get back to you. I'm really good at that. But school has really made me a little bit crappy at responding back to people. <laughs> But I will get back to people because I love hearing, you know, for me, I was, I can create something, but I need to know what the audience thinks and also what makes people tick and yeah. what issues are we, our storytellers not addressing that the audience wants to hear. So I always love to hear about people and if I can be of any help to anyone that's thinking about starting a business, that's thinking about following their passion that's thinking about business school, especially if you're a woman of a certain age, please, 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 please reach out to me. I would love to connect with everyone. If I can make their journey a little bit easier based on my experience, I'm happy to do that because there've been so many people who have created, who who have made me the woman that I am today. And if I can give back to others, no matter how, even just like a question, whatever it is, I'm happy to help.
1: That's so generous. And thank you again for coming on the show. You've been amazing. You've shared so much, and I really oh, appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciated all the time. And that is it. Today's episode was brought to you by Skillshare. If you haven't already signed up for Roxanne Gay's writing masterclass on Skillshare, I don't know what you're waiting for I totally get though if you're like I don't want to sign up and pay for Skillshare so take advantage of the promo code depth and candor free and get Skillshare for free for two months and take the class I strongly strongly encourage it because all of us should know how to tell our stories in real and authentic ways. And I just love Skillshare in general because I've learned so many things about so many things by taking classes on there. But Roxanne Gay's class is something I am particularly excited about. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes. It will make this podcast more accessible to people who don't know about Depth and Candor, but who want to create incredible work and live a vibrant life. And if you want more from me, like goal-setting workshops and access to secret episodes, join the squad by going to depthandcandor.com backslash subscribe. You can also find me on Instagram at depthandcandor. Until next time. Live vibrantly.